Brent Sanford, Lieutenant Governor of North Dakota. Also the former mayor of Watford City. We like to mention that when we're talking about oil and gas activity because the Lieutenant Governor kind of grew up with the recent boom in Watford City being in the heart of it, the heart of the Bach and Shale play right now, of course, Watford City. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the oil and gas industry and the Bakken specifically, uh, just to get everybody up to speed here. Uh, we've had a, well, you know what? Let's just take a step back, if you wouldn't mind. By the way, how are you doing today, Lieutenant Governor Brent Sanford? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, Jason. Thank you. Nice to nice to be able to visit about some uh, something other than just COVID task force meetings. So uh, I enjoy being able to visit about the industry. It's it's been a real challenge, and we're going to end up talking about COVID any, regardless because of the demand destruction the industry's seeing. But I'm doing pretty well relatively well good good i'd like to just kind of set the table a little bit here because i i think that a lot of people outside of the energy industry don't really understand what happened in the oil and gas industry because when you take a look at the industry you know whiting laid off people last july and it was like a third of the staff and then you had chesapeake and halliburton had layoffs in october and november last year china had the covid shutdown last year as well so the energy industry did get hit last year with a lot of different you know variables a lot of it was because of covid19 across the globe and then you take a look at the uh, russia saudi arabia opec that whole geopolitical shenanigans that happened there and then of course we have the american covid shutdown so you know there was kind of a one two three maybe even a four punch in there depending on how many ways you want to splice it so the energy industry really got hit really hard. This isn't news to anyone, but I do think some people forget about the global uh, implications that helped uh, uh, put us where we're at today. What we're going to talk to Lieutenant Governor about is kind of their task force for a uh, restart program in the Bakken, the Bakken Restart Task Force. But first of all, Lieutenant Governor, just your comments on my uh, opining about the kind of the global impact, if you will, what kind of really brought us to where we're at today in the energy industry? Well, exactly right. The uh, the um, industry is basically the just-in-time inventory and, and and demand of a hundred and some million barrels a day is is kind of where it was sitting, and it goes and it would go up and down, not not that much compared to that you know the slowly rising number that had gotten over 100 million barrels a day and and uh united states had been able to carve off a, a number one slot in that uh, global oil production and uh obviously thank you to the shell production permian and eagleford and and bakken and, and um there were there was some some constraint that was happening as you said um earlier but until the impact really hit United States, I don't think anyone saw this type of drop to go from 100 million plus barrels a day to seven in the 70 million range, and to see and no one I don't think would have predicted a minus 37 dollar WTI last month, and and now there's you know people are gathering wondering what it's going to look like at the end of the contract for the period for this month as well. But what that showed us is that there's a there's a fear in the market. There's the the actual demand destruction that occurred from people sheltering and not traveling as much and the and the airlines being being uh, constrained like they are we just had a report that our airline boardings were were down uh, um, 
over 10 times. It's just amazing what's happening there. And tough to run a business in those type of environments, but it's also leading to a lot less fuel consumption. And um, so here we are today. And the 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 where it gets to for North Dakota is that this, the tax revenues represent roughly half of all taxes received with the sales tax and, and severance taxes from the industry. And so we follow pretty closely that daily production and the price for our budgeting. And we're assuming we were going to be at around a $50 price and a million four of barrels produced. And we had exceeded that up until recently. And at this point, we're, we have a director's cut being released today. I don't know the numbers exactly, but that we're looking at um, all the press releases, all the gathering of information from Justin Krinkson and Pipeline Authority is that we're, we might be below a million barrels, which is pretty shocking. Um, in the last downturn, uh, we, we were at below a million barrels, I believe only one month, but the industry responded um, quicker than they did last time with with shutting in, and I would assume it's a, it was a different situation. We've got a lot of multi-well pads now where even five years ago there was a lot more production trying to hold leases etc and um, um, now you're hearing some numbers like 70% of wells shut in from some operators so we don't know what the bottom of this is going to be but the news of the shutting in of production in the Permian and the Bakken evidently is helping our WTI get you know inch back up into the high 20s which is not where it needs to be but it feels better than minus 37 and ten dollars that we saw so so here we are today trying to figure out what is going to happen in these communities we've had um the unemployment claims from covid related unemployment claims already had been we'd already had unemployment in the energy sector before the restrictions were put in place from executive order and so we had a, a rush of unemployment claims from the energy side of the state and then with the executive orders for covid we saw more unemployment claims we've had historic unemployment claims in north dakota um thankful to the federal delegation for helping us get flexibility in our in our cares act funding from the feds so that we can use that to help on unemployment and not put that back on employers but um that doesn't really help that much in the short term so to our topic for today the bakken restart was formed um to try to help specifically for the energy industry in that side of the state and the um looking at regulatory relief um there are requests to do things like um you know, basically that in our estimation would have been getting in between the contracts of producers and midstreamers, which doesn't, it's not a very North Dakota way of doing business. So we, we didn't do some of those things that were being considered in Texas and Oklahoma, et cetera. Um, what we ended up doing is looking at more of an incentive approach, more of a carrot approach. And, and in this, in this case, what was approved at emergency commission, now going to, now going to our state budget stabilization um, group of legislators is, is uh, in a, a dollar amount, to put uh, towards plugging wells. And what we're doing is actually getting the companies to work that actually do that kind of work, but also helping out those operators where these wells have become completely uneconomic in this time. And they're in, in danger of remaining shut in and the wells being destroyed. And then it becomes a lot larger liability for the state on the back end. So it, it actually helps the state on a budget line that we would not have had enough set aside to plug those wells and get them and get them um, safely plugged and abandoned and so we can we can get a handle on it now using some of these COVID dollars is is actually it actually serves two purposes to get some of those service businesses back to work and helps the state with a liability that's going to be out there in, in the larger a larger focus of liability to the state because of this COVID demand destruction on the industry. 
You mentioned uh, a couple of the tough topics that are very difficult for people to talk about, abandoned wells, taxes, shut-ins, that type of thing, which is, is kind of the broader picture of, uh, you know, when, when a company goes bankrupt or a company goes out of business because, you know, in California, I think they have like 35,000 abandoned wells, for example, just to throw that out there. Uh, has that been talked about in this task force in terms of if uh, if companies are no longer a company, what happens to those assets or, uh, so, you know, the taxes that if, if they're owed? I guess I don't understand how that structure works on that. But um, as long as we're talking about really difficult topics, nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole. I might as well throw that one your way. Well, it is talked about. And, and we, we're very proud that um, we know where our orphan wells are. We know where the where the abandoned wells are when if you go to the inner the iogcc which the governor bergam is the chair of iogcc um the uh those gas oil and gas producing states that have been producing oil and gas since the late 1800s early 1900s don't know where their orphan wells are at and so you might stumble upon an old well bore when you're putting in a new housing subdivision we know where they are in north dakota luckily probably because we started production in the 50s and always had them mapped out of where the wells were at so we're able to keep an accounting of ours which is is not the case for an ohio for instance or <laughs> i was gonna say ohio is just notorious yeah. for abandoned wells yeah so they so they they don't even know where they all are so it's drastic drastically different conversations at those iogcc meetings depending on if you have current oil production and when your oil production started so we're in better shape that way but definitely in this case it becomes a state liability and a state cleanup issue when the wells are abandoned because they're not economic because the operator um, can't is, is not able to be found and they don't have a bond to take care of it and so that becomes our liability so we're able to find um, to find flexibility in the funding that we can get out in front of some of this identify those that we can't cover with the fund that we already had set aside and get this back to work now interestingly enough the next phase of what we're talking about is is furthering the the more of a carrot approach versus a stick approach and it's the fact that these shut-ins are happening on an economic basis not because of us getting involved in any conversations between midstreamers and producers and forcing any regulation on people but if there's shut-ins that are happening it's their own reaction to the market demise and the market reduction and, and so hopefully we um this doesn't happen very long so where their wells are damaged but what we want to do is be the first place they'd want to deploy their capital when they decide to go back into the market when the prices come up to a decent point. And so we're looking at the next phase of this, of being an incentive package of what does that smart restart look like to come back to the Bakken first? And is it a, is it going to be tax relief? Is there going to be uh, another grant program that can be put in place to help with having to bring that workover rig in or having to, to you know, it can be up to $70,000 to get a well back online. Well, if you've got, an incentive package from of taxes or maybe even grants from North Dakota versus maybe none in other places, maybe they'd bring that capital here first. So we're going to try to be the first place that oil activity comes back when they want to bring production back online, not knowing when that's going to be. It's going to depend on how the world and the Americans and how we all start our consumption process again of travel and, and oil and gas uh, demand. But when that day comes, hopefully we're first to where that capital is deployed. Can I ask you a dumb question? You're you're an accountant, so you might know the answer to this. But you're, you you work at the state, so you I guess you probably should know the answer to this. But it's not your department, so I was just kind of thinking that your background and just where you're at and just knowing you, 
you might know. But if you don't know the answer to this, you can always say pass because the last thing I want anybody to do is to stick their foot in their mouth or speak what they don't know anything about. Um, when you take somebody like, you know, uh, Whiting, which was kind of the poster child, you know, for I feel bad for Whiting. There's so many nice people there. and They're just getting beat up as the poster child because they were the basically the first major mid-major that came out and filed bankruptcy. And I know there's restructuring and bankruptcies changed over the last 20 years pretty dramatically. What happens on taxes for things like that with the state and, you know, and, and those types of things? I'm sure it impacts the budget forecasts and, and things along those lines. Do you know the answer to that? Like it, it, in terms of who's on the hook and who, you know, what gets restructured and, and that type of thing? Because it's um, like, again, we're talking about topics. Nobody wants to touch with a 10 foot pole. But I thought maybe because it's going on right now, you might have an answer to that. I'm just curious. Yeah, I actually could go into this pretty deep, but the, <laughs> the thing is, is that the state doesn't have equity investments in any of these operators. The state does not have loans, per se, in general to these. They might have a participation side to a loan, but generally not exposed on the credit side either. And what's happening on these uh, Chapter 11 reorganizational bankruptcies is the, is the debt financing, the bond financing that the companies have is being restructured and some and so the generally your bond holders your your banks are going to have to take some portion of a percentage on the dollar and then obviously the stock price suffers during that time so the people owing owning that stock suffer but as far as taxes if the, the company's losing money regardless if they and maybe they have less interest expense if they restructure so you might actually have more net income paying north dakota income tax um but the the main the main driver of taxes for the state is the sales tax activity, mm-hmm. which which fracking uh, injects a lot of, of sales tax into the state when that when that process is going on. So the new the new well drilling and completion really brings in a lot of sales tax. And then once those wells are online, the gross production tax and extraction tax, we're taking ten percent tax off the top line, off the revenue of the barrel of oil. So the real tax revenue comes after the sales tax comes in on the fracking, et cetera, and the completion, but then when the production goes, that's when the state really makes out. It's like we're a 10% partner with them without cost. It's 10% of revenue, and that's pretty steep even compared to other states, but companies choose to do business here because we are friendly on the regulatory side. We're very low on the tax side, and the, the Bakken geology is top-notch. So anyway, the, the gross production extraction tax might have a better effect if someone's able to reorganize their debt and put more money towards actually drilling wells and putting people to work than paying interest. Mm-hmm. Um, the sales tax is really important for people to remember too, is that there's a lot. In fact, we, I, I don't know if you and I have talked about this, but you know, Brent Bogar, when he was doing some yeah. consulting work, he, he had that study that showed, you know, 45, 50, 60, 70%, depending on which, which uh, splice you want to do with it because the sales tax and the motor vehicle taxes and things like that weren't necessarily included in that uh, pie chart he had. So that's the end results were uh, somewhat debatable. I usually went with 50, 55 percent of the state's budget was kind of tied to oil and gas revenues and those extraction taxes that we're talking about. Um, What what's going on there? Because my my guess is that. you know, for one, we, it's probably 
lesson learned. We don't want to put a, that many eggs in that basket again because of just the, the, the market fluctuations. But maybe not. I don't know. I'm just kind of uh, uh, kind of weeding through this a little bit. But you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? The amount of percentage that was tied to the energy industry and in those taxes. For the state budget? Yeah, yeah. Yes, in the, that in that the study state. that uh, Brent did that was that, that was just to me it was like eye opening to me you know, and that was why the petroleum council suggested it be done and, and I, I don't know if they funded it or they encouraged it but it was it was to point out that that it, and it's not just the general fund number it's not just the four hundred million that goes into our four point eight billion dollar general fund by any means guess what there's also what's called SIF. SIIF, Strategic Infrastructure Investment Fund, that's general fund, that's another $700 million. So 25% of our general fund revenue is from straight, straight from oil and gas taxes, the extraction taxes and severance taxes, right? And then another couple billion in revenues from sales tax, which a large part of that is from oil and gas. And that is before you even get into all the special funds. And so the state collects $4 billion plus of oil taxes, of which only, you know, I just rattled off about a billion of it goes into the general funds. The other three billion of oil taxes, um, 30% of it goes to legacy fund, and then the rest goes into constitutionally funded or law or, or legal designated buckets of where the, where the, uh, it goes out back out to um, oil and gas counties, it goes back out to tribal oil producing entity, um, um, nations, it goes back to, uh, education and water. So it, when you're when you're talking a legislative session and getting everyone in the state involved in conversation of funding, the education and the water and the water project communities come together with oil and gas side because the, a lot of the funding is coming from oil and gas for those areas too. So yes, we're very reliant on it. But that brings you to why the governor and I feel so strongly about diversifying the economy while we can make make some hay while the sun's shining on our fossil fuels and our oil and gas in addition to our egg economy and build that legacy fund up not tap that legacy fund that legacy fund you hear a lot of calls right now for spending the legacy fund for this downturn but no that would be like cashing in your pension we have accounts like the budget stabilization and the SIF fund that are billions of dollars that are your savings accounts but the legacy is our 401k or our pension and that is our future and we need to get close to where further than where Alaska is at, closer to where Norway is on having a sovereign fund where you can actually have earnings coming off of that legacy fund to pay for the general government services that we do need going forward when the day comes where those extraction tax can't and, and sales tax can't cover half of our governmental needs. So we are, that is a, that is a legacy we want to leave is to keep building that legacy fund, protecting that legacy fund, investing wisely. So the earnings coming off that someday when it gets to be more like, closer to $100 billion or $70 billion, not the $7 billion that it sits at today, that we could actually be funding government needs for the state of North Dakota, maybe not even have to have income tax. If we got it large enough, you wouldn't even have to have property tax. So that's the type of legacy we could leave. That'd be a fun place to be down the road for our kids. And it's possible with oil and gas. Well, the other thing, too, that is point, important to point out right now is I wanted to bring that up primarily too because I, I think it's important that the east side of the state remembers how much of the uh, revenue comes from oil and gas activity because you know some sometimes in Fargo you got to drive five six hours to get to the closest oil rig so they're, they're they're pretty far removed from that daily life so I try to 
make sure we, we mention that when we can. And the other thing I, I did want to bring up is is kind of this this ESG uh, certification where this is this is another obstacle, obviously, that's being thrown in the oil and gas world. And I did want to I did want to talk to you about that a little bit because it has a direct impact on a lot of the state uh, retirement accounts and, and, and other things like that. But as far as diversifying the the economy, that that's the direction to go because that benefits industry. I mean, so much of every industry in, involves oil and gas that the more you diversify agriculture and technology and healthcare, you need oil and gas to, to do that. You need the petroleum products in the surge of natural gas that's coming uh, to where more and more energy sources are, are, are finding out natural gas is a foundation fuel, not a bridge fuel. And, and just those types of things. So it's, it's good to see that diversification happening a little bit. Uh, I did want to ask you about the ESG certification and some of the things going on there, because like I said, it does, it does kind of tie to different retirement accounts and state budgets and that sort of thing. And we're seeing, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo Bank, and there's banks that are requiring this and being told not to fund projects. And I'm even hearing rumblings of even insurance and things like that. So uh, talk to me a little bit about what's going on at the state level uh, and your professional level when it comes to, you know, the uh, certain accounts being tied to oil and gas and, and just how that whole relationship is working. Well, the oil and gas industry has been affected by the ESG policies for when they're trying to gather capital for drilling, that's for sure. So you've got these companies with before this downturn, they all of a sudden had really low PE ratios and they're having to use cash for their drilling plans and he still couldn't capitalize to where the level where they used to from, you know, the larger the organization they're approaching, they might have the ESG side might come out and say, we don't want you to invest in this side. And it's affecting the, the, uh, uh, lignite coal generation utility industries right now too, with, with not only losing financing opportunities, but also the insurance industry starting to push back and, and not want to be involved in fossil fuel type, development so that's that's very concerning for north dakota i mean is the next push going to be nobody wants to be involved in finance and insurance for agriculture because agriculture has a large methane footprint and uses a lot of of oil and gas for driving tractors etc i mean what where does this end so this is a this is a constant perception battle and and battle of arguing science and and economics etc from from our state's perspective it it come interestingly it comes um, also into our boardrooms for state investment board and land board when our investment advisors are talking ESG lending and and in ESG policies etc. I mean on investing and um, you know the, it becomes the, those elected board members being elected officials in North Dakota hearing this it puts us in a, a difficult situation. But the um, premise around investing these funds is diversifying these investments as well so it's not like like i said stated before we aren't investing in only bach and oil producer stocks and etc they're, they're very broad based and so it's it's a it's not as concerning as one might think but it's in, it's an interesting topic that comes up when you have a bunch of elected officials from north dakota and people that are citizens that have made their living in north dakota do you see uh, this changing at all, or is this is this is this kind of the new normal in energy now? Well, it seems like it's just a new normal in our yeah. in our society, and so the 
the answer is what I always say is why not get out in front of them and point out the fact that this is the cleaner way of doing things. And we look at the reclamation gains and successes we've had on the lignite mining in North Dakota. We, you can't tell if that land that this is being farmed was a former lignite mine or not because of the this, this, this success we've had in our reclamation standards and, and actually putting it into practice. And when the, some of the leading technologies for carbon capture coming from the EERC up at UND, from the state, from giving Lignite Research Council grants and from giving oil and gas grants and, and value-added egg grants for ethanol, for CCUS, carbon capture utilization storage at ethanol plants. And that, that cutting-edge research is happening here in North Dakota. And when I'm speak, I love to speak at UND, NDSU, speaking to student groups and saying, hey, why not clean it up? Why not have a negative carbon footprint here? And they say, well, well you mean not a neutral carbon footprint? No, negative. What if we're hungry and using someone else's CO2? actually need someone else's CO2 to do enhanced oil recovery in our oil fields while we're taking care of our own CO2 footprint from our ethanol plants, from our coal, from our lignite industry. That That's a vision that we can push towards and having that innovation coming out of North Dakota. Then the ESG lending and, and uh, borrowing and investing and insurance type policy would most likely look somewhere else. Maybe they'd look to where the actual pollution is occurring in the cities where the the epa scores for air quality are terrible in san francisco and and we're the best out here where we produce the power from lignite and where we we produce the oil so maybe some of those ironic situations could be focused on again brent sanford lieutenant governor of north dakota joining us from watford city out there in the Heart of the Bakken boom just wrapping up here we're talking about the Bakken restart task force uh, we'll have the links at The Crude Life. You can check out the uh, uh, Sanford interview, and uh, we'll have the links there as well. Another link we'll have there is the director's cut, which is going to be happening in about, a, it looks like about an hour or two. You mentioned uh, Justin Kringstead's name, and so uh, I did want to get a pipeline report, uh, not not a detailed one like Kringstead would give, and we'll have the links for, for his, on, his on there, but... So much of uh, natural gas and the natural gas petrochemical plants and just that next phase, if you will, have to do with pipelines. We got to get them built, you know, that sort of thing. Do you have an update on that just in terms of are we out there this are we planning on, you know, building, moving ahead on it? It is considered critical infrastructure uh, by by the by the federal government. And so my my understanding is that you know, legally, the pipeline should be moving ahead. But in today's day and age, I have no idea what to expect. So <laughs> what's what kind of conversations are you guys having about these pipelines being built? Like about which ones? The ones that, the one like through Wyoming and South Dakota? Are you talking about in North Dakota? Uh, my guess is we'll take any of them at this point. Well, in the there's there's ongoing conversations about midstream development in North Dakota, obviously. I mean, and there were there was pretty heavy conversations about oil pipeline moving west. And, you know, the 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 uh, the projects going through South Dakota and Montana, I mean, it, it seems like there's never ending challenges there. But the DAPL um, had went through the PSC, increased their volumes. And now, you know, there's another legal challenge there. But but the DAPL has been amazing for getting oil prices to be competitive right here in North Dakota in the middle of the country. And, you know, it's, it's so much safer than hauling all the oil out by rail than we were doing earlier on in the Bakken, so much safer than hauling it around by truck. 
And so, so yeah, so the, the pipeline build-out is super important to the state. Um, the, the thing that we've been so focused on is the gas side of it. And um, one, been waiting for a glimmer of good hope, signs of good hope throughout the last two months. And one of them was the outrigger announcement that they're moving forward, they're permitted, they're moving dirt west of Williston. That project will take not only... Um, you know, it'll take gas from numerous producers, not just the main project sponsor, but um, gathering natural gas in that north of the area, river, that river, north of the Missouri River area in Williams County, um, and much needed. They're looking at actually being able to do fractionation. We ended up short of propane this winter, so I mean, it seems nonsensical to be trying to bring propane back from Kansas after the natural gas leaves from here and goes to Kansas. So those are welcome words for us to hear. It's a huge project. Uh, potentially maybe even um, start some conversations about ethane extraction and using that for power generation in the western part of the state. So, I mean, there's there's great things still happening. So, yes, the, the gas pipeline projects are still moving, thankfully. We hope, you know, if there's one glimmer of positive news that we actually aren't going to have to worry as much about our flaring guidelines because the capture will become more important as the and the speed of production of the of the the new bringing the, the new wells into production is a little slower so you can actually catch up a bit so hopefully our gas captures is, is becomes better than in this downtime and and have a set up well going into the future some of the projects that were that were announced in december january now are on hold but those are expansion projects that the plans are there the intent was there and i would say it'd be just like what happened uh, with the Demix Lake plan of One Oak, that they come online maybe three or four years later after a downturn. It's not that they go away forever. So it's there's a lot of good corporate partners here. Public-private side is, is seems like it's matching up well on the capture side, on the natural gas piping side, and, and hopefully on the value-add side with these conversations about utilizing the ethane that we have here. So just kind of wrapping up here, getting back to the beginning of the Bakken Restart Task Force. Uh, uh, what's kind of the summation of that? What's the next step? What should people know? We are uh, trying to focus some of the federal resources and state resources to the Bakken, understanding the importance and the of the of the um, oil and gas to the entire state, and trying to bring people some some hope and put people back to work in the meantime and help with negative state budget items that we wouldn't have to fund later on if we can help some of those items now, but also looking to what that incentive might look like to bring the business back when, and get the jobs back here first and get the tax revenues rolling again into our state coffers where the education side and the water side and the general fund side really need that activity and that business activity to pick up again. And the communities out west, they're going to have to be patient again. It's going to be a 2015 and 16 repeat of finding revenues for those communities and those local governments out west and have to weather the storm, be ready for it to come back. 